the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. Now, somebody please tell me what kind of weather is this? What kind of weather pattern are we dealing with here in the Bay Area? What what was yesterday all about? I mean, really? It was a it was a it was a quite peculiar, bizarre, strange, almost again kind of pulp fiction type of day. You know, I don't mean to give that kind of description to the ominous nature of God's power and uh, his his own inscrutable choice to do what he did. But I'm still trying to figure out what happened yesterday in terms of this Bay Area and the winds that basically put almost all of us here in the local Bay Area in a tizzy one way or the other. And then I get out of my car about two minutes ago. <laughs> Start walking into the building and I'm going, the weather is perfect right now. I mean, perfect. one 367 Again, one 367 If you want to call, uh, Let's create something. Let's uh, put something together. Let's let's hodgepodge. Let's ah collaborate, if you will, around a two-hour program presentation discourse of uh, the Freedom of Speech Act that you and I constitutionally engage in as a privilege in this wonderful country of ours. Uh, with yours truly, Jesse Gistan. Very glad to be here. Just um, you know, looking at things. Um, from a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know how to put it, maybe a bird's eye view. I feel almost like uh, existentially present, if you know what I mean. Kind of weird, just kind of weird. So, um, yeah, let's just put something together. I'm here for your calls. I'm here for your questions. I'm here for your observations. I'm here for um, for your assessment. I, I love I love the dialogue. I love the opportunity to deal with spiritual things. I'm here to help you with your challenges whatever they may be Um, within the framework of our human experience. There are a lot of things that we all are going through and uh, we can just do some counsel. I put my biblical counsel hat on my uh, pastoral fatherly grandfatherly hat on and help you. If you got some downline problems with your kids, let's talk about that. If you have some challenges in your marriage, let's deal with that. You pastors out there. I know that uh, pastors don't often you know, uh, do any kind of excogitation around church struggles. But if you have um, 
some concerns with your congregation and you want some uh, insights from a brother that's been doing this now almost 30 years, I'd be glad to uh, give you some advice around uh, healthy churches, unhealthy churches, healthy members, unhealthy members to boot. All that kind of stuff is within the uh, range of my uh, scope of experience. And I love to deal with it. Love to do it. I, I, um, I'm coming off of uh, four days of doing three funerals in virtually a row with the exception of, of yesterday. And yesterday had its own real peculiar challenges to it. But uh, coming up off of a funeral this morning, um, all the way up until about one o'clock, just thinking through how the, uh, the patterns and cycles of life, the brevity of life, the, um, uncertainty of life the the challenges of life the the what i have uh, coined as a phrase coming out of ecclesiastes chapter 3 the extreme polarities of life cuz that's what solomon gives us in ecclesiastes 3 you have heard it i uh, use this as an exhortation text uh when uh dealing with a a, a, a m- memorial on saturday and just trying to encourage people to understand what's going on. And we're dealing with a crowd of about 50 or 60 people. And uh, the good preponderance of them were older, although we did have enough younger people for this message to have a kind of prophetic edge. Largely, it was a reminder to the older people that these extremes are something that God has long ago told us would occur. He says, in everything, there is a season, season and a time to every purpose under The heavens under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, time to pluck up and to to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. These are extremes. These are polarities. These are seasonal dynamics that occur in our life, and they are necessarily uh, so read principles. You know, you're going to be born and then you're going to die. You are going to plant. And if you hang around long enough, you will pluck up that which is planted. The extreme polarities of life force that on us. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. That Those are extreme polarities, too, that we don't always, uh, you know, have a very good handle on. A time to weep. There are things that come about in your life and mine that definitely uh, appropriate the emotional response of of weeping. Had that going on over the last couple, two or three days. It's always interesting when we're doing memorial services. I teach my guys that when a memorial service is done or a funeral is done, that we are to take into consideration who passed, who died. Uh, the families are our parties who took on primary interest of that individual. And then the audience that would be there uh, in, uh, in, in the service to, to, to observe and to watch or participate, if you will, in the unfolding of that memorial or that funeral service or that home going, all of the different euphemisms that we are employing today often to get around the fact that what happened with that loved one is simply one word. They died. Okay, and where we do all of the flowery euphemisms to get around the word word death, you know, the sun set on him or whatever language we use, 
the reality is that he died. And, 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 and unless you and I face the biblical worldview of what death is all about, what we're going to do is we're going to just put so many flowers around that event that essentially, theologically, we are denying certain realities, certain polarity of events, again, extremes, uh, the elation and joy that you and I get out of the birth of a child. I mean, that is probably one of the highest joys a human being can experience, the birth of a child, short of being born again yourself. Uh, And in some cases, because of the mystery of the new birth, we don't celebrate it as um, overtly radical as we do the birth of a child or a grandchild, etc. But the elation that comes over the birth of a child should merit upon the death of that human being uh, a, a measure of mourning, a measure of grieving, a measure of sorrow as part of a respect for the humanity that is no longer with us and won't be with us. And until you and I enter into the new normalcy in eternity, we will always be bereft of that individual. And so it's totally appropriate that if that individual touched you in some kind of way or another, that it should it should bring sorrow to your heart that you will never see them again. And therefore, as a believer, as a person of dignity, as we try to bring value to the termination of a loved one. We want to do everything within the framework of a memorial service, a funeral service, a home going service, and any other term you want to use to do two things, dignify that individual and then also dignify God. Do not dishonor God, deny God, distort God in the process of a memorial service. You have to find a way to preach the gospel to the living about the reason for us dying. There's a polarity again. You have to preach the gospel to the living as to why we die. Death is not one of those intrinsic, original uh, 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 designs of God that is inherent in our human makeup. We were not born to die. We were not created to die. In fact, When you take the Genesis narrative carefully and and believing in the historicity of it and recognizing that God created man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, plural, God did not make Adam born. He Adam did not have a birth. He didn't he didn't go into the womb. He didn't be part of the, the, the mystery of life in terms of the sperm and the ovum and the process of development you know, first, second, third trimester, and then deliverance. He was created a whole human being with all of his faculties all at once because what God wanted to do in that first man who represented humanity was to help us understand that what he had designed man to be is a permanent, eternal servant son for God. Death only came in when we rebelled against God. Death only comes into our life when we disobey God's word. And so every one of us dying, the moment that we die, we have told the absolute truth about sin, the absolute truth about the consequences of sin, the absolute truth about spiritual realities, the unseen world, and eternal consequences. When we die, we have preached the most accurate sermon that we could ever preach particularly if we struggle with telling the truth. Uh, But when we die, everybody's in class that day. Everybody's now being taught by the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, the determination of God to take that loved one, no matter how much we fought to keep them alive. I had a beautiful uh, service on Friday of a husband who so loved his wife, who was 
dealing with major sickness in the hospital for four years in the hospital, fundamentally almost at the brink of vegetation. But he loved her for four years and God allowed his struggle to love her and to be with her and to care for her and to take care of her all those years to serve as a redemptive platform for us down here. That greater love hath no man than this, than that he what lay down his life for his friend and how much more so a husband and a wife. And it tested a lot of us over the four years of the husband uh, being in the hospital every day for four years with his wife until at one point it became very evident that there is no more uh, there is no more purpose for her in this world. And she passed and uh, we got a chance to talk about it from the depths of the pain to the beauty of uh, the potential that will occur in the future because she was a believer. But we had to deal with the fact that all of this is a consequence of sin. That's right. All of the variations of of pain and suffering, inconsistencies, brokenness in our world is a consequence of sin. When Solomon says in verse three, a time to kill. Well, killing only came in after the fall. A time to heal. Well, healing only occurs as a necessity after the fall. A time to break. Well, breaking things is only a consequence of a rigorous uh, lifestyle, which is the consequence of a broken world where we have to labor by the sweat of our bra. And then a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones. That is to tear down buildings. And to uh, to remove formations and structures that were uh, originally raised up in time past. This is one of the spooky things that happens to a culture after so many years. A culture disappears. Sorry, it just disappears. Have you ever had that that really bizarre experience of growing up in a neighborhood, leaving that neighborhood and being gone for 20 years and then come back to that neighborhood? And that neighborhood is either a ghost town or altogether changed. Well, somebody came in and said, you know what? It's a time now to scatter the stones, break everything down, uh, remove the stones and get ready to build again. A time to gather stones together, build a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. Sadly, that occurs in our lives, too, doesn't it? Individuals we once loved, engaged with life, enjoyed, laughed, danced, and partied as God would grant us the privilege of enjoying life. And then one day that's not happening anymore for all sorts of reasons. The underlying reason often is either sin or um, some divine separation, but largely sin. You know, a brother offended is like the bars of a castle. Offenses will come. And a lot of times we don't gather back together with people with whom we have offenses until death. It's quite true. Listen, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to lose, rather, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to sleep or keep silence, rather, and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. Yes, the Bible says there is an appropriate place for hating. It's in God's nature, and it's in yours, too, if you tell the truth. A time of war and a time of peace. That wouldn't be the case if there were no sin. And so Solomon lays out for us these extreme polarities with which you and I have to deal with. Here's what I would say, putting on my pastoral and counselor's cap, and I'm going to take a break. Waiting for your phone calls at one 367 The challenge of the polarity of extremes between birth and death, 
between joy and pain, between weeping and laughter, between dancing and mourning, between hating and loving. The, 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 the parameters between that challenge you and I. And uh, they can impact us so deeply emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and then practically choices that we make and uh, impacts that occur uh, in our life as a consequence of these polarities. And we need to know how to handle them so that we can live a life that basically is able to uh, thrive in these tensions. Are you struggling somewhere along the scope of Solomon's words? If so, give me a call. one 367 one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. This is Monday edition of Lifeline. Ready to engage you and talk with you about life matters. Jesse Giston, Pastor Jesse Giston, Grace Bible Church. Been on this program for 10, 12 years. Glad about it. So let's get talking. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, the phone lines are open. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. If you want to call and start a conversation with yours, truly be glad to hear from you on uh, on any topic that would fit within the framework of our calling as believers. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine is the number to um, to reach me. Um, I, the president's acquittal it took place last week. I, I did get a chance to hear the. Um, the uh, State of the Union speech. And um, essentially what I have to say about it is that um, it's a speech. <laughs> I don't know how many uh, State of the Union speeches I've heard. I've heard a lot. Um, like I said, going all the way back before Nixon, listening to many State of the Union speeches. And it was, uh, I, I'm I'm pretty sure um, the name will come back. Uh, uh, it's almost on the tip of my tongue. Uh, and it will come back. He was a um, <clears throat> he was a um, a writer and a commentator in England many years ago. It's almost there. But anyhow, here's what he said about State of the Union speeches. And once he said it, it made all the sense in the world to me. And, and it helped actually put a kind of a, a a mental and a psychological break on how I listened to. Uh, Chesterton, yeah, uh, Chesterton uh, said a state of the union speech is one thing, a speech. That's all that it is, a speech. I remember hearing that many years ago, and it made all the sense in the world that you don't do anything with a state of the union speech, but hear it out. Yeah, we can weigh out the um, the form of presentation that's called homiletics. Um, we can talk about the uh, the the tempo and the the temperament, the 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 content, the delivery. We can talk about the optimism and positivity and all of the stuff that went into generally what is often stated in a State of the Union speech by our president. But, ladies and gentlemen, all it is is a speech. That speech could have been as eloquent and as uplifting and optimistic as anyone ever heard, and yet remains to be only a speech. That is to say, I mean, as I listen to President Trump set forth all of the things he 
accomplished under his administration versus other administrations, as is, you know, his norm of normative framing of things that get done in order that, you know, he might obviously make sure that we all recognize that he's the one that done it, that uh, that did it. Uh, all of the things that he stated were now occurring that didn't occur under the Obama administration. A significant portion of them may very well be true. More jobs, better jobs, you know, uh, better this, better that, more this. He would state several times within the State of the Union speech, first time for this, first time for that, first time for this, first time for that. Never in the history of the world, never in the history of America did a president ever accomplish this. Okay. So now what do you do when a speech lasts 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and it's filled with all of these personal accolades, all of these personal achievements, all of these collective achievements? Well, there is what is called fact checking. You check the facts. Now, I don't waste my time with any of that, but there are people out there who do that. Why? Because when you're on the air, as am I right now, and you begin to lay out assertions, allegations, you make statements and comments asserting something, something, and other people have the capacity to actually examine, deconstruct, analyze, fact check what you're saying, then uh, then what you said is simply a dissertation, simply a homily, simply a sermon, simply a speech. That's all it is. And it may or may not be filled with integrity. When a fact check is often done on our presidents, when uh, the speeches are done, particularly the State of the Union, day after the speech, you can go online and look up the percentage of errors that were um, riddled throughout his speech. And it will often tell you something about the integrity of the speech. Again, they often are writing speeches with the purpose of uh, getting their own uh getting their own comrades, the choir to sing. And that's certainly what happened. It was quite interesting watching President Trump as he did the State of the Union speech because, you know, if you, if you ever wanted to see a glaring manifestation of polarity, of hostility, of variance, of conflict between uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, it's there. Now, this happens in the most uh, humorous and vigorous way in the parliament in England. Whenever you watch them debate, I mean, it gets it gets wild. Uh, somehow our uh, European civility, uh, for the most part, restrains us in America when we when we do it in, at the White House. Um, very seldom are there any overt uh, cacklings or hostile retorts, but in, uh, in in the parliament, boy, they be they're shouting across at each other. They're disagreeing and they're 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 overtly polarizing. But Nancy Pelosi, I mean, you know, it was almost impossible, quite frankly, to even stay focused on President Trump uh, while Nancy Pelosi is behind him, almost like a ghost. But certainly as a nemesine foe who basically initiated the um, the uh, impeachment trials, as you guys know, and uh, she was just super duper uncomfortable. And then toward the end of the speech, as you know, it was in all the newspapers, on all of the uh, radio stations, particularly news outlets, her tearing up the speech as if it didn't have a scintilla of truth to it. Uh, look at Nassie. Look at Nassie. 
And so, you know, you guys, we want to definitely keep some perspective in terms of what this whole thing is about. So glad I'm just not not super invested. So glad that I'm not so wrapped up in it that somehow I'm going to be upset with Nancy because she's upset with my man. So glad that I'm liberated from that kind of distraction from so many more important things on a biblical, on a redemptive level, on a Christian level. And so glad that I'm still free in my heart to be able to pray for the president and pray for Nancy Pelosi equally without any kind of discrimination in my heart. So glad whomsoever the sun shall set free shall be free indeed. Got to take a break, pay some bills. I've got three lines open. Come on now. Let's talk this through. Help me get through these two hours so I can get on home and relax with my wife and some of my kids on the Monday edition of Lifeline. one 367 I will answer your questions on any topic that you want to talk about. That is appropriate within the framework of this program. Looking forward to hearing from you. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we're back. 543 on this Monday edition of Lifeline, January 10th, 2020. Um, February 10th, 2020. Toward the end of the week, we will have RB celebrating Valentine's Day. I know some of y'all get weird with that, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, how y'all feeling, sisters, around Valentine's? Give me a call. one 367 5329 How would you appropriately... Uh, rain Valentine's Day into a kind of biblical justification. We talked about this last year. We really did. How how can the believer, uh, how can the body of Christ, how can men, how can women, uh, couples or singles, uh, how can we rein in that particular uh, holiday and uh, re- redeem it for God's glory in a way that uh, will will be uh, edifying to us? One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Valentine's Day is not a biblical mandate. It's not even biblical in the biblical sense. We could go into the history of it. We won't. But uh, I think it's a great opportunity to express love and uh, affection towards loved ones. They don't always have to be your direct amore uh, special person. But uh, if they are, then uh, what a wonderful opportunity to express the love of God uh, in our heart toward that individual and the multi-leveled love that we would have for them. And I remember last year talking with a couple of my sisters in in their single state about them doing something for themselves <laughs> on Valentine's Day. I thought that was I thought that was quite cool. I, I had to uh, uh, step back for a moment and work through the idea of uh, one of my sisters saying, "I'm I'm gonna wake up on that Valentine's Day and I'm gonna thank God for my life." And then I'm going to move into a uh, position of, uh, you know, just kind of doing something for me. And uh, she started talking about it. And then I uh, I said, OK, so now where is the Lord in this? And then she quickly said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely the Lord, because quite frankly, when you and I um, when we do our life right with a proper prism and perspective on life, it's all about the Lord um, as the foundation of it. And therefore, this is a wonderful opportunity to actually demonstrate the unchanging love of God in our own heart. 
So what you going to do? I, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. This Friday, I will not be teaching Bible study. <laughs> the church will not be open on this Friday. Even though I love to do it, love y'all coming out. It's all wonderful. This Friday, I will be exercising my privileged freedom in Jesus to um, to do something else a little bit more uh, horizontal and uh, collaborative, if you will, a subject-object relationship with a hot sister that uh, I, no, don't tell my wife about this sister. She's hot. And uh, looking forward to hanging out with her. Let me go to line one and talk to my brother, Dan. Brother Dan, what's going on with you, man? Well, I want to mention to you is about three or four things that are all connected. Okay. That, um, over the last 40 years, I've witnessed maybe more than 40 years, an increasing trend in the local market, a couple other stations that do talk radio, of a swinging away from reasoned discussion to some kind of adversarial rhetoric. Right. Exactly. And I, when you were mentioning the British Parliament, I'm watching what I witnessed last week being pretty juvenile, and it's causing me to be coming at things from a juvenile point of view. Absolutely. And it I definitely don't like impacts. That. Yep. I don't want to have a, a, a as witness us members of Christ's body are told by Paul that uh, division and factionalism and partisanship are listed in the works of the flesh. Yep. And uh, when I see, I even find myself getting irritated with people being juvenile. Right. Um, what I did sort of therapeutically after I saw this impeachment happen and saw the, uh, the thing with the State of the Union address is go back and watch the first debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Okay. The first one that they held. And I said, okay, now I've got some distance on this whole arrangement because they were trying to come at things from the same point of view and trying to tell you how the other one was not going to do as good a job, that they had it together and the other one didn't. But they say, we agree on this, we agree on that, we need to increase jobs, we need to, uh, we need to decrease crime, we have to find a good approach to crime that works, we have to take guns away from bad people that shouldn't have them. They both said the same thing. Sure they did. Are you there? um, Yeah, are you there? You know, we don't need to be juvenile, but the problem is there's a connection between religion and politics. If if we can see God's love for us in um, the Bible, and if I can get a little bit more mature... uh, I shouldn't be uh, dragged into the works of the flesh. We, you know, set your mind on things above, which is the spiritual gifts and the spiritual fruit. Right. And uh, this doesn't make sense to, uh, you know, to to get into the political fray. It really doesn't make sense. In that sense, you know, why should I descend? To, I even heard uh, Jim Bohannon mm-hmm. uh, when he was on Thursday or Friday. And he had witnessed this. He came on, and they had an archived over the weekend where he said, you don't need to descend to that level and be that juvenile. If you can live above it, talk over their heads. Show them where their heads ought to be instead of descending to where they're talking at, because down there in the gutter, where are you going to get to? All you're going to do is inflate yourself. And um, I was surprised to hear this uh, comparatively secular political talk show host 
encouraging people to be a little bit more spiritual. However, so. that that but see that that statement right there, I would probably uh, take some issue up with you in terms of the dichotomy between secular and spiritual, because quite frankly, in order for God to be as vindicated as he will be, Brother Dan, on the day of judgment, dealing with lost men who operate on the spectrum of uh, intelligent, even genius, to imbecile and idiocy. That spectrum between uh, those two categories uh, and, and everything in between tells us that there is an intersectionality of conscious moral and ethical, universal moral and ethical laws with which is uh, the intrinsic quality of all human beings that does not require any kind of real spiritual awakening or redemptive clarity in terms of the gospel or the spirit of God in, in the area of apologetics or when I'm dealing with the atheist, what I will tell the atheist or the agnostic or the, the, the bona fide secularist, Dan, I will say that you are borrowing so much material from God and from his word and from the patterns that have been laid out for you in our world and in our culture, which is the job of the church to do, to be the fullness of Christ bodily on earth. You are borrowing so much material from the scripture that you just might as well own the fact that you are basically um, a thief and a robber uh, assimilating these characteristics and qualities because you know they work um, without giving glory and honor to the God from whom these things originate. That's how I deal with it. But I don't ever I'm never surprised, Dan, at an unregenerate man who would have a deportment of character. That would be rooted in civil principles, the ability to have uh, a rational, reasonable, even passionate conversation without it uh, descending into the kind of uh, adolescent, pre-adolescent emotionalism and psycho uh, uh, chaos that proceeds from uh, politicians uh, that would uh, that would uh, that would condescend to that level of uh, presentation or, or um, expression. What you and I are dealing with in our culture, and then I have to let you go. What you and I are dealing with in our culture is what God said in Isaiah chapter 3, Isaiah 29 as well. But certainly in Isaiah 3, he says that children shall rule over them and women will be their oppressors, or rather women will rule and children will be their oppressors. We've been talking about that for decades here, as you know. And what happens when society does not have a robust representation of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood as a model uh, as 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 Jeremiah put it, as the people are, so are the priests and as the priests, so are the people, meaning we just gradually devolve into this uh, childish kind of behavior that ultimately ends up being our demise. It becomes a, a caricature, if you will, of a kind of childish banter and uh, uh, adolescent uh, frustration because we don't know how to deal with each other on on matters of uh of civil respectful um debate that can advance the issues and uh bring clarity to coherent arguments we don't do that anymore and as a consequence i have told the church over and over and over again on this program and you've heard me avoid the dialectical process because that's what you were describing of politics it's in religion as well. I've lost many friends in religion when I tell them I have absolutely very little respect for politics. The dialectic of politics is you're wrong. I'm right. 
And unless you capitulate to my position, we're enemies. Well, there is really no room for that within the framework of the body of Christ. You know that I know that. And yet that kind of political dialectical process has dominated the church in America and in Europe to the point where we have very little uh, better representation of the Imago Dei and certainly of a redeemed man as we're as we're called to be the fullness of Christ bodily to the world. We don't contribute much at all. All those folks in uh, uh, in Congress will call themselves some kind of believers, largely speaking, and yet we don't really see these kind of virtues showing forth. Listen, thank you for your call. Let me go to line two and talk with Roxy in Oakland. Now, Roxy, how are you? Hi, Pastor Jesse, how are you? I'm good. good. And I only know one Roxy. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about, <laughs> did I ever grow up with any other Roxy in my life? Um, so I'm making the assumption that I know who this Roxy is. Uh, you might be correct. Yeah, good. Now, see, when you opened your mouth, you just told on yourself, because everybody that knows the Roxy I know, the moment that you say your first word, we know who you are. You can't even hide yourself. Oh, I should have used a different name. Yeah, you could have used a different name, but I would say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This oh, okay. girl sounds like Roxy Hardeman. I, I know Roxy. Come on now. What's going on? Um, So you kind of addressed it with the last caller, but in thinking about politics and thinking about Christians, um, so, okay, I was... um listening to and watching the prayer breakfast, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, that's typically a bipartisan event. You know, they kind of, you know, cool their heels during that time. Exactly. And actually, I don't care one way or the other what um, the president says or does, but this was uh, supposed to be like a Christian event. It is, yeah. And he went on to talk about his... um, you know, about those that he said pray for him and Mitt Romney, who didn't want to go against his faith. So he, you know, voted to impeach him. And then he talked about Nancy Pelosi, and he didn't believe that she prayed for him. And so one of the pastors told him that, you know, some scriptures and talked about how you're supposed to pray for those that rightfully use you or whatever. But he went on to say, well, I'm going to have to disagree with Jesus right there. And the pastors and the ministers in this event, they laughed, and they thought it was funny. Yep. Um, he said Jesus was wrong. Yep. <clears throat> there you go. politics at its best, but I just have a problem. I have a problem with the ministers that were there that did not, um, you know, I, I just the whole setup and him, you know, saying that he was right and Jesus was wrong, I got a problem with that. Right. Well, that's your, those are your, I'm sorry, you know, you, we go way back. So I don't have to explain anything to you. We go so far back with the consistency of my argument against <clears throat> the depravity and duplicity of politics. You, you know where I stand. I, I know that your whole family, your, you know, your husband and I were uh, deeply attached, you know, at the heart around the, the integrity of the believer, making sure he is not trapped by the political structure and particularly black people. For me, you, you know where I stand with that. And everybody that listens knows they know where I stand. And here's one of the r- reasons why, as you were giving an example of the lack of authority in those pastors at that prayer, ve- prayer, prayer ve- 
um, prayer breakfast for the pastor. He holds the highest office in the world. The pastor holds a higher office than the president. If the people of America were to vote me in to be president of the United States, I would be being demoted. And that is explicitly clear for us in the word of God, that the role of the pastor, the role of the the minister, the role of the bishop uh, is to represent God at the level of biblical authority. And there is no room for the kind of uh, uh, political backslapping that I've seen so many times over the years uh, with pastors and bishops and uh, prelates and priests and all of them who, uh, you know, circle and uh, frequent the, the, the White House and, and uh, Washington. And there are many of them there because they, um, they, they feel that they are called to try to influence politics to a certain degree. But if you and I really kind of look at where our nation is going and where it's been going for the last 20, 30 or 40 years, at least in the framework of the conscious uh, time span that you and I were aware of our country, we're going downhill. So our ministers... Our ministers are they're not going to ever make an impact upon a man of of uh, of Donald Trump's uh, ilk upon a man of Barack Obama's ilk. Quite frankly, uh, both Donald and Obama uh, are more of a pseudo Christian as they're running for president than they are after they become president. And we saw that with, 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 with Obama's election and choices of uh, a policy that led to a wholesale opening of the floodgates of, of uh, gender issues and homosexuality and, and the whole uh, same-sex marriage thing. That whole spectrum that was taking place in on his part was said to be done under the watch of a president who alleged to believe in Jesus. And I have my faith in all that. And you have heard me explicitly say these men— these men are the epitome of hypocrisy when it comes to the gospel. And everybody that's rational knows that what I'm saying is true. This won't ever move me into any kind of political spotlight. This will never get Pastor Jesse put on a platform with any of the leaders. I could care less. You know that. I'm just simply saying when you see these kinds of things occur, just understand those men are not there to promote the authoritative, inerrant, inspired word of the living God, because if they did, they would not tolerate that kind of response from the president and still call him a Christian. I disagree with Jesus. That's absolutely ludicrous. But but there you have it. And even a little child that truly believes in Jesus would have the power and authority by the spirit of the living God to rebuke the president uh, notwithstanding the inability for that president to humble himself and submit to to what Christ said. Uh, you know, he can't. He's just like any other unregenerate man. He will never bow the knee to Jesus and obey Jesus sincerely unless God absolutely changes his heart. So with that said, um, what? what, what, Beside that kind of expressed buffoonery on the president's part and the kind of timidity weakness on the part of the, the preachers there, which I've seen so many times, it's just saddened me. What? What is, that gonna, what is that doing for you, my sister? What is it doing for you? It, it wasn't the president that bothered me. No, I know that. I know that. Minister. Right. That's, you know, if, if, if we're not set apart, if you can't, make a statement, draw a line, 
they should have made him so uncomfortable with that statement. Right. It just bothered me that they call themselves Christians and no one did. Right. And this is I mean, this is the danger of integration of politics and religion. This is the fine line that we have to learn how to um how, how to walk in this is as a pastor. I deal with this frequently because if I make the wrong choices, Roxy, to engage with persons who really don't have a love for God's word, but may be movers and shakers in the community, may be able to open doors for things like, you know, uh, a, a larger platform for for discourse or or uh, speaking. And, and I've bumped shoulders with several pastors over the many decades I've been in ministry and, and, and God clearly made it evident to me that I was not to put any energy in going down the trajectory of that course with them because it would end up the same thing at local level at state level and at national level that I would be sitting around backslapping with men around things that have absolutely nothing to do with the glory of God, the centrality of the gospel, the exclusivity exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Um, and therefore, we would simply be priests of no value, physicians of no value, uh, having popularity, but no real substantial influence in the hearts and, and minds of men and women. And quite frankly, that really just happens on the ground level with with, with people whom God chooses who are nobodies and nothings and simpletons, uh, et cetera. That's, that's the way that goes. So don't be moved. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You know how to do that. Keep your eyes on Christ and, and understand that um, really good spiritual men, really, really good spiritual men uh, and women are rare. They are just rare. Thank you for my call for the call, sis. Talk to you soon. Got to take a break. Got two lines open. one 367 5329 one My people love to have it so. The priest, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their own authority, and my people love to have it so. This is the deception that comes with politics. I'll be right back. 